You're watching UPN, the United Paramount Network. Well, hello there, Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses. Welcome back into the Aqua Cave for the flagship, the mothership, if you will. It's UPN, episode three. And I just want to take a second to thank everybody out there who's already consumed the first couple episodes of UPN. It seems to be uh, the most popular show here on the Aqua Cave. And, and for that, I really honestly want to say thank you, and I appreciate that, because it's definitely the show that I put the most effort into and wear my serious hat the whole time. And so it's nice to know that that's appreciated and rewarded. So... I am here today to unveil some more potent numbers, uh, and we are in the thralls of SmackDown in this new era in 1999. Now, this is actually, in sort of a sad way, going to mark our halfway point through this journey. And if it's your first time spelunking here in the Aqua Cave for UPN, let's talk about briefly what it is that we do here. So I sort of came up with this theory that the first six episodes of SmackDown were extremely important slash innovative slash interesting. And the reason that I came up with that theory is because, number one, it was the WWF's first uh, consistent exposure back on network television ever since Saturday night's main event had disappeared. And it's arguably the hottest period in the sport. <laughs> All right, I, I did call it a sport. Forgive me. And... Being back on network television created a unique atmosphere where, number one, they needed to make sure that they reached this audience that wasn't, uh, and you know, expand from their core. And one of the methods that they chose to gather this audience was to provide spectacle. And what I mean by spectacle, how I quantify that, is that there was major storyline advancements, major storyline happenings, uh, character changes, things like that, but also... Matches that you would normally find behind a paywall. You know, there's the old adage that um, Andre the Giant doesn't have to be the WWF champion because he's an attraction. He sells things by simply just existing. And of course, I think that's true. But what we find here in the SmackDown 6 era, if you pardon the expression, because I'm not referring to the SmackDown 6 Awesome Wrestlers era, the first episodes, you do find... Things like World Heavyweight Championship matches that should be maybe saved for pay-per-view. Like last week, we had The Rock versus Triple H with Shawn Michaels making an appearance on the show as the special guest referee. And honestly, kind of sounds like on paper that should be headlining a pay-per-view, but it is a match that we're finding randomly here on UPN. Now, how do I quantify this even further? You know, it's one thing to say that these items were interesting and that they were innovative, but how is it that I'm going to share that information with you, the listener? Well, here on UPN, uh, we unveil potent numbers, and we do that in the form sort of, uh, it's, like, it's sort of reminiscent of a game, but what I do is take a look at the rating that each episode earned. For example, last week's episode received a 4.2 Nielsen rating. And so that episode needed to get to 42 UPN points, as I lovingly call them, in order to justify that rating, in order to justify the items that they're putting on television to entertain and grow their audience. Now, how do I award these points? Well, they have to fall under three categories. Acting, 
writing, or directing. Which sounds kind of serious, and again, we are talking about professional wrestling, but acting points are earned by professional wrestlers perfecting their craft. You know, perhaps accomplishing something amazing in the ring, uh, subtlety to their performance, maybe it's a dynamite line delivery, uh, writing, is the narrative getting pushed along? Is something happening, uh, perhaps on camera? Is there something happening in the announce booth? Just as examples, it's pushing forth the overall narrative and helping the story evolve to uh, the individuals watching at home. Directing is something happening with the production, the camera work uh, that helps you know move along this narrative. And each one of these points should hypothetically equal a viewer not turning the channel. For example, if... No, I don't want to use anyone who's going to be in this episode. Let's say Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up on screen, and it's a, he's a new character, and that's a writing development. And so it gets a writing point because... I'm assuming someone sitting at home watching on TV is not going to be changing the channel because that is a powerful enough development to keep that viewer in their seat. It's a different era, mind you. This is before DVR, on-demand consumption, and things like that. And so that's why we tie it so heavily into the Nielsen ratings. There is a fourth category of point that are called intangible points. These are designed to account for personal taste. And so because of that... I'm only allowed to award five intangible points per episode. Now, that doesn't mean I have to use all five. That has yet to occur. But at the same time, they're there to account for personal taste if necessary. And that sort of summarizes how we quantify an actual human being viewing this program in 1999. Now, last week's episode was a bit of a disappointment. From an overall entertainment perspective, but from a Nielsen ratings perspective, like I said, it chimed in at only a 4.2, and it only earned 43 UPN points. And I do try to keep this point alignment. Um, I try to be consistent. I try to not simply give out points in order to get to the number that's necessary, because I'm dying. I'm waiting for an episode to lose. Could this be the first one? Let's get into the actual data about this episode and see what happens. So it's our episode three. It's the second weekly installment of SmackDown. Keep in mind, the first episode we reviewed was the pilot that took place in May. And now here we are in September. It's September 2nd, 1999. And technically, it was taped on August 31st, 1999. And it's in North-South Connection PTBN Stronghold, Worcester, Massachusetts. Now, I did reach out to JT before recording this episode, and he was not in attendance. So, there's no need to spend the evening's uh, festivities looking for him. But, folks, it's a big one. Its Nielsen rating is a 5.2, up an entire point from last week's episode, which means this episode of WWF SmackDown better bring the goods because we only won last week by one point. And even though each one of these episodes is interesting and important, let's not forget that that pilot episode really delivered on all cylinders because they were trying to not only prove to the viewers that you should watch, but prove to the network that they needed to get picked up as a weekly, ongoing, episodic program. 
So, how do we start this episode of SmackDown? Well, a little bit of change is in the air. One minor, one major. The first thing I notice, and again, this is not a recap show. We move from point to point and discuss anything that's relevant in between. But up top, I do notice that the Ovaltron is now on the right side of the ramp, if you're looking at it from the ring, as opposed to the left side. Now, is this a huge thing moving forward? I can't actually remember if it's something that shifts back and forth, but last week was its debut, and we were on the left, so I thought I'd point out that it's on the right. Also, the big change this week is in the announce booth. We've got Michael Cole and Jerry the King Lawler, replacing our last week's team of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. And let's not forget, though, that all the way back on the pilot, Michael Cole was in the quote-unquote driver's seat with Jim Cornette. And that was kind of strange, but they ended up getting a couple of riding points, so good on them. And speaking of points, let's get the point train rolling with point number one. And wouldn't you know it, it's actually an intangible point. So I'm dipping into my reservoir right away. But the point is awarded to the little UPN light slash logo that now appears in the lower portion of the stage. Now... There's definitely a very good reason this is an intangible point. I love little stuff like this. I would jokingly say that it's brand synergy. But in all seriousness, I kind of love... Like if I was a business owner, like if I I was in charge of like a larger business, I would especially now, I mean, well, give or take, but I would desperately try to, if I was in a space that made sense to partner with the WWE, man, I would love to do that because... One thing you can absolutely say about this company throughout time is they sort of go above and beyond when they're in a strategic business relationship to tout, if you pardon the expression, that brand um, as a sponsor. They really sort of go all out and all in, again, pardon the, the wrestling puns surrounding those phrases, and they represent their business partners to the best of their capabilities Um, You can see little examples of this throughout history. Um, Think about the USA Network logo on the Raw stage. Or the the big thing that comes into my mind is when TNN not only shifted its own brand identity from the Nashville Network to the National Network when they got into business with the WWF, but how the Raw stage evolved to incorporate that new TNN logo and then later the Spike logo. Not to mention these days... They're totally in bed with their broadcast partner, Fox, on SmackDown. They've integrated a large portion of the Fox Sports graphics packaging uh, in their own presentation. And so, I don't think you could really say that they're a bad business partner or collaborator. And when I see that UPN light slash logo on the stage, that's the first thing that pops into my head. And it gives me good feels, because after all, UPN's a new network at this point. So... A little thing like that, I think, does go a long way to show that we are partners. Right away, China is here on the stage, and it looks like she is going to be doing battle in a number one contenders match for the Intercontinental Championship. Now, I don't watch Raw, so I'm always a little bit out of the loop. And I do that on purpose because I sort of try to look at this from a perspective of a viewer who may not be completely engaged. And that's why these acting, writing, and directing points are so important. Because they're universal concepts that should apply to television programs, you know, and film to a lesser extent, across the board. Because after all, 
While they, of course, want to capture their regular WWF audience, they're here to capture new viewers. It's a new channel. Not UPN, but it's a new channel to deliver content. It's a network television program. And so they get a writing point, and it's point number two. Michael Cole describes to the viewer that China is indeed the sole number one contender for the Intercontinental Championship. And she won this uh, award on Raw uh, back on Monday, and of course this airs on a Thursday, but she, uh, but she, excuse me, he also lists her, that being China, her accomplishments and barrier-breaking resume, putting over the China character as a threat. And the reason I think that important is not to speak ill of China and not to sort of drive a wedge between the gender the you know I don't want to accentuate gender differences in wrestling, but keep in mind, folks, this is 1999, and at this time, a female competitor. Well, you know what? Coming out next, uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to why it's important to talk about how China is just a regular performer like the rest of the athletes that come out to perform. Her opponent is Mr. Ass. Now, he's back to being called Mr. Ass, when I believe last week he was Badass Billy Gunn, if I'm not mistaken. And we thought about that a little bit. Perhaps it was a UPN directive. But he's back to being Mr. Ass this week. And to tell you the truth, they both include the word ass, so I don't know why it would really be a huge deal. Here's where the female component comes into play. The current Intercontinental Champion is Jeff Jarrett, and he comes down the aisle with the championship to perform color commentary on this match. He's seconded by both Deborah and Miss Kitty. Now, Jerry the King Lawler on commentary, once these two ladies come into view, spends his entire portion of commentary speaking about the kittens and the puppies, referring, of course, to their breasts. Now, I don't say that to put a shining light on what he's doing, but that's a reason why it's important to show that the China character is not on the level of Deborah and Miss Kitty. She is a character that is completely unique and does indeed deserve to be the number one contender for the Intercontinental Championship. And that's not to say that Deborah and Miss Kitty shouldn't have been presented in this way, but there was a decision made not to present them this way, and so it sort of draws the line between China as a competitor versus the other females on roster. Because shortly after this paper, or excuse me, a couple of months after this episode, on pay-per-view, Miss Kitty would indeed reach the heights of her career by performing full frontal nudity, which I'm not here to glorify, but I'm simply here to say that, yep, that's that's the old, uh, that's the bag of tricks that they dug into to get their female characters over. It's not exactly award-winning content. I mean, she's pretty and everything, and I'm a heterosexual male, so okay, that's cool. And I'm not trying to put her down as a person for choosing to do this. You know, when you're a performer, you need to use what's in your toolbox. And given that opportunity, I can't say that it was a bad thing for her to do that. I'm not here to put her on blast or shame her. Because that doesn't fucking do anything positive anyway. The next point is an acting point. And it's awarded to both Billy Gunn and China. Billy Gunn has China up for a delayed vertical suplex. China wiggles out of the suplex and counters by landing on her feet behind Billy Gunn. She immediately transitions into a back handspring as Billy Gunn turns around to create separation. She rushes in for a kick and then hits her patented China DDT variant. And it's an acting point because of the athleticism involved. Because while Billy Gunn and China are actors, 
the main portion of their acting is done in the ring as performers. Now, this wasn't exactly completely smooth. There was a little bit of stutter step involved after the back handspring where China kind of pumped the brakes. But to hell with all that. This is a cool sequence, and I'm giving them the full acting point. And, of course, the stupid fucking crowd can't help but champ puppies during the entire match, which really kind of bugs me. Uh, Because, as I think it's been revealed over the course of my podcasting career, I'm kind of a China mark. And I really empathize with China, the person, because I feel like, had she been around now, not only would she be the queen of the women's division, but I think she would have been the type of person who could really do a lot of good for a lot of people as a talking head or sort of a role model. Um, And you know what? I don't say that to make jokes and what have you, but I'm going to stop because that's not what this show is about. It's about points. And the next point is awarded solely to China, and it's an acting point. China is whipped into the turnbuckle and does sort of a flare flop, which means she throws herself over the the turnbuckle violently and lands on the floor. Now, this entire sequence is the point, so I'm going to go into a few bit more uh, pieces of detail. On the ground, she's holding her elbow in pain. The referee comes out to check, and Billy Gunn comes out to take advantage, you know, not to take advantage of the situation, but because he's her opponent, he comes out to continue the wrestling match. Now, Billy Gunn is also friends with the China character, and so he's concerned. And it's not overly dramatic, but he kind of walks over to China and checks on her. China sort of stands up and walks away and pushes him like, hey, this is real. Billy Gunn gets closer to double check to make sure China's okay. In China is playing possum. I'm telling you that right now. But she doesn't reveal this to the audience by being real loud about it. She doesn't shoot right up and be like, ha ha, and laugh in Billy Gunn's face. She subtly takes her arm that's already around Billy Gunn and reaches up to his hair, yanks back on Billy's hair very violently, and smashes his face into the steel steps. It's a fantastic cunning ruse from China. The next point is also awarded to China right away, And it's for the exact same thing, acting. Because the China character is actively using individuals' refusal to treat her like any other competitor against them. Imagine if it was X-Pac instead of China that was doing this spot. I highly doubt the referees going out to check with such concern, and I highly doubt that even though they're friends, Billy Gunn is stopping to make sure X-Pac's okay. Because... To be blunt about it, X-Pac's a guy and China's a girl. And China, the character, is absolutely aware of this and uses the other individual's quote-unquote stupidity or chivalry, whatever you... I mean, chivalry's cool, but it's stupid in a wrestling match and you shouldn't let it get in the way. China's not yet a don't treat me like a woman, don't treat me like a man in terms of her theme music, but the character's certainly there. Treat me for what I am. I'm your opponent, Treat me like that. And if you refuse to, I'm going to take advantage of that. And that's an acting point straight to China and good for fucking her. The next point is also right away. It's point number six and it's an acting point. Because Billy Gunn gets thrown into the steps again and completely does a flip over the steps. And then gets thrown face first into a chair. And he is 1000% China's dance partner here because he is selling like it's the main event of WrestleMania for her. And I think that's fucking awesome. Mr. Ass does hit a Famouser on China when they get back into the ring and the ref is bumped by China. And this leads us to point number seven, and it's a writing point. 
because Triple H immediately storms down the ramp and takes out Billy Gunn with a pedigree. Now, why is this a writing point? Well, it's not an acting point, because I'm not really impressed with Triple H's performance here, but it's a writing point, because this puts over the narrative that China and Triple H are indeed a unit. He's the WWF champion. She could potentially be the Intercontinental champion. They would indeed be a power couple, and I'm not even saying couple as in a romantic unit or a linked unit of male and female. They'd be a power couple on level with the Mega Powers. And why the hell did they not do this and then have the Mega Powers, in quotation marks, explode at WrestleMania 16? And if you'd like to hear about that, I released back in the North-South Connection Podcast Network an episode of the Multiverse of Fabulousness that rebooked WrestleMania 16, which does indeed culminate in Triple H and China meeting for the WWF Championship. And I just don't book it. I also give the background and the storyline that would lead to that match, so I recommend checking it out if you're digging my commentary here on China. A couple of fun things here. There's a WrestleNet.com sign in the audience, and I feel like I might have visited that site. Uh, Colin King, Recap Raw, and they mention, thanks for staying up late with us on Monday Night Raw, because that episode did indeed start late. And as soon as they start to talk about what happened on Raw, I remember specifically as a youth staying up late to watch that episode and being completely tired the next day uh, because school had started. I remember the first day of school in 99 for me was the day after Triple H captured the WWF Championship on Raw and I made sure to wear my Triple H shirt for the first day of school. But on Raw, I'm going to mention because it's important for this episode, uh, the Rock and Sock Connection captured the WWF Tag Team Championships from the Unholy Alliance of the Big Show and The Undertaker. And it's revealed that they did this because Paul Bearer pulled The Undertaker away from the match by distracting him by whispering something into his ear, which is a mystery that's going to be moving forward. And what really drove home me remembering staying up late to watch this episode was the double people's elbow delivered by the Rock and Sock connection to get the pinfall. Because I think that might have been the first time they ever did that spot, and it resonates in my memory. And speaking of the big show, here comes the large large attraction himself in a WWF logo shirt. The big show is on the mic, and he's kind of sloppy as an interview at this point. Not only because he's kind of too loud into the microphone, something I've been accused of being before, but he's also very much slobbering all over the microphone. And I have the closed captions on, and and a funny note, he gets the old indistinct treatment when the closed captioners can't decipher what it is he's saying. But let's get into some points. The Big Show calls out The Undertaker, and instead, the fat man, Paul Bearer, is here. And I say, the fat man, lovingly, because I love Paul Bearer, and Paul Bearer did indeed call himself that. Now, the next point is point number eight, and it's a famed directing point. These are hard to come by, but when they have an impact, they really have an impact. And I think the impact, yes, I'm using impact a lot, but let's see why it gets a directing point, because it does indeed circle around impact. Now, the directing point is based on this entire sequence, so I apologize for going into great detail, but it's important. Paul Bear is walking and talking, and he gets in the ring, And he's saying, the Undertaker made you, and he can destroy you. And it's a normal, uh, hard camera shot of Paul Bear stepping into the ring ropes, okay? As he says, uh, he made you, and he can destroy you. When he says destroy you, the camera cuts 
to the side where the announce table would be sitting. And we're over the shoulder of the Big Show himself. Right when Paul says, destroy you, we get this camera cut. And the camera zooms in on Paul Bear's face, and we see his eyes go wide and get huge. And we only see the Big Show's foot come into frame. And it, this foot absolutely murders Paul Bear and kicks him right in the face. And the microphone slams onto the ground and makes that loud static pop as it hits the ring apron. And the director, you know, may be at an advantage because it is a taped show. But the camera folks were in place and we captured the shot appropriately. So we might as well use it. The Undertaker wobbles out now. And I say wobbles, not to make fun of him. But it's clear to everyone because we have the knowledge of the real world, that The Undertaker is very much working injured at this point, and it shows when he walks. I also love this, like, Ministry of Darkness-era Undertaker's bodysuit that he wears, because he kind of looks like a supervillain wearing his logo on his shirt, and I just kind of like it. The next point is indeed a ward to Mr. Mark Taker, and it's an acting point. As he gets into the ring, Paul Bearer is lying in the ground like, a, like just a dead carcass. And the Undertaker walks over to check on... Nope, he's not checking on Paul Bear. It looks like he is, but he's just grabbing the microphone. And he takes a big, dramatic step over Paul Bear and gets in the Big Show's face. So it kind of puts over that the Undertaker's like, Yeah, I don't really care that you just took out Paul Bear. I'm just going to get in your face. He grabs the Big Show by the shirt and pulls him forward. And he, he pulls him forward hard... And starts to whisper in his ear, but I swear to God, it looks like he's kissing him. And it's kind of funny, because who would imagine in 1999 an on-screen kiss between The Undertaker and The Big Show? It would have been progressive, but alas, he's just whispering into Big Show's ear, much like how The Undertaker had a message whispered into his ear. And so, I don't really remember what the payoff is, but I'm really here for it, and I'm hoping that we get the payoff soon. The Undertaker basically says, don't disrespect me, I'll choke you out by ripping your tongue and making you choke on it, yada, yada, yada. The last point of the segment is point number 10, and it's an acting point, because Paul Bear starts to come to, and laying on the ring apron, he holds out one arm, hoping that someone will lift him, but no one does. We cut to the back, and a black limo is arriving as we head to commercial. Now, folks... We like to recap these segments to sort of track the time and track the points. And so we're 14 minutes into the show as we go to our first commercial break. And damn, we got 10 points out of these, uh, you know, this interview and this match. Six acting points, two writing points, one directing point, and one intangible point. Not too bad, folks. Considering the magic number is 52, I'd say we're off to a pretty damn good start. We're back from commercial, and here comes Mick Foley, which, of course, is exciting because Foley's pretty hot around this time. Now, this isn't worth any points, but I think it's hilarious because on closed caption, well, Michael Cole says, welcome back to SmackDown on UPN. Perfectly normal. But the closed captioning says, welcome back to SmackDown on UKN. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if Michael Cole said UKN, but you already correct autocorrect WWF to WWE. Why not just go the extra mile and correct it to UPN? But alas, no time to ponder these things because it's time to dish out some points. Alright, so point number 10 is an acting point, And it's awarded to Mick Foley for just being a god on the mic and being pretty funny with this story. 
Now, I'm going to deliver this performance to you as mankind to show you why it gets the acting point. I apologize ahead of time for the length, but I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know how many of you remember this, but when I was 14, there used to be this game called Electronic Football, and I used to play the heck out of that game. And I was laying down on my bed, and I was playing a game of Coleco Electronic Football, and while I was playing this game on my bed, I happened to be naked. Now, the king chimes in on commentary with an aside that is pretty funny, and he goes, Ah! All those vibrating players! The soliloquy continues, And my mother walked in the door, and even though I wasn't technically doing anything wrong, it still has stood out to me as the most embarrassing moment of the past 20 years. And then he takes a beat. Until I lost to Shane McMahon, that is. And tonight, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and then he gives the thumbs up and the crowd goes crazy, I'm going to get even. But hey, mankind didn't come out here to talk about his nudity, his electronic football, or his mom. Mankind came out here to talk about the great one. And that is the sum total of point number 10 for acting, but point number 11 is immediately awarded for writing. And it's for the fantastic way that Mankind pivots this humorous but character-driven story to talk about The Rock, who, of course, we know that character worships, and to bring out the Great One himself. He talks about The Rock's testicles, and it's pretty funny. And here comes The Rock, and the crowd goes apeshit. Now, I mentioned Mankind talking about The Rock's testicles being fortitudital and his own nudity in this interview segment. Point number 12 is immediately awarded to The Rock. Because even though he's wearing sunglasses, he comes out with a look on his face that isn't sort of like anger or anything like that, but it's a look that says to me, Mick, what the flying fuck are you talking about? And again, he's not angry, but he's just kind of like, Jesus, Mick, what the hell, man? And, you know, we all know The Rock's a decent enough actor, so I think it probably goes without saying that it would be realistic for him to gain a point for something like that. Now I'm going to take a step back here. As I've realized, as I'm sure everyone was shouting at their listening devices, but don't worry, I hear you. Uh, during Ever since I did the points summary, I've absolutely fucking botched the point allocation, okay? So just to go back and start from when Foley came out, he got point 11 for telling his story, and then point number 12 was for his pivoting to The Rock, and then Rock coming out on the stage gets point number 13. All right, so we're good. Crisis averted, because holy fuck, I'm glad I caught that, because I just would have fucking just ruined the whole thing, and the whole project would have been a waste, and <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have lived up to your expectations. And speaking of not living up to your expectations, point number 14 is immediately awarded to Mick Foley, and it's an acting point. Because as The Rock is, uh, you know, coming down to the ring, doing his posing and what have you, The Rock mounts the turnbuckle, as he's known to do, and Mick Foley starts a Rocky chant over the house mic. And he's like, Rocky, Rocky. And The Rock sort of shoots him in the eye, and he very much looks agitated at this point. When The Rock gets the stick, he summarizes everything by saying, You talk like we're friends, but The Rock's not having you down to Miami for Christmas dinner. We will never be friends. And then point number 15, it's a writing point. 
The Rock pivots and says, But you are the craziest son of a bitch I've ever seen. It's some subtle character stuff, indicating that The Rock, much like an onion, has layers. Point number 16 is immediately awarded to Foley. He is ecstatic about this accolade and acts like he is. Uh, But The Rock puts him on blast, saying it's not a compliment. It is a compliment, but I think The Rock character just doesn't want to encourage this sidekick chicanery. Because, you know, Mankind is an equal to The Rock in his mind from a standpoint of they're both professional wrestlers, but Mankind definitely sees himself as like The Rock's sidekick. You know, I mean, for example, uh, The Rock has the millions and the millions, and The Rock has the dozens and the dozens, etc., etc. But the point is, you know what, fuck the smooth transition, it's already gone. It's just one of those days, guys. Point number 17 is next, and it is an intangible point, because The Rock summons Mick Foley closer to him so they can be eye to eye, and he tells Mick, don't ever talk about The Rock's testicles again. And while it's not really worth an acting point or writing point because it doesn't develop things, really, it really just sort of makes me laugh. Um, You know, this type of stuff happened all the time between these guys in the Attitude Era. And so it's... It hits me in the right spot. It reminds me of of memories past, and so an intangible point is awarded. Well, what up, Kingfish? And speaking of what up, Kingfish, I say that phrase because Shane McMahon is here, surrounded by Triple H, the WWF champion, and the number one contender for the Intercontinental Championship, and that is China. But I'd feel remiss if I didn't self-grandulize here, folks, and promote the new show here on the Aqua Cave called Kingfish, where we relive the episodes of Sunday Night Heat that were hosted by Shane McMahon. He's simply glorious on commentary. Some would dare say he might be the GOAT. His ridiculous catchphrases and mannerisms and the way that he enunciates just drive me fucking crazy, and I have so much fun reliving these quick episodes of Sunday Night Heat where we do cover the matches and kind of talk about what's happening and what's going on on the show, but mainly we make fun of Shane, but in all the ways that are fun. And speaking of making fun of, I do want to pivot back, and this is kind of serious. Triple H, like, I know that he's done the game shtick. I know that he now has his presentation of, like, his theme song and his strobe light, and he's getting the water bottle thing down, which, you know, love it or leave it, what have you. But Triple H, in these early stages as WWF champion, is really just, like, I've, I've tried to approach UPN, this project, as being a casual viewer. Now, if I'm flipping channels, and I see any one of these characters, uh, this is just a list I made of the first random people that popped into my head, but I can sort of get a feel for what these characters are, just by looking at them. You know, you think about, like, 80s cartoons, and it might be ridiculous. Like, think about, like, G.I. Joe, okay? Stupid example, but hear me out. Let's say one of the G.I. Joes, I think there's one, like, Shipwreck, maybe. I don't know. But is he the guy who's always in, like, his Navy uniform? Or maybe saying that, well, he's always in his military uniform because he's in the military isn't the best example. But let's say there was a a fucking G.I. Joe named, like, I don't know, Pasta, and he walked around in a Chef Boyardee outfit all the time. So you see Pasta 
in the middle of combat and he's wearing a fucking Chef Boyardee outfit. You see Pasta at his nephew's graduation ceremony and he's wearing the fucking Chef Boyardee outfit. It might not be the best look, but I get who that character is. So I feel like I could do that with The Rock. You know, he's in his big expensive shirts. He's uh, the pretty boy. He's an asshole. He's the jock. Uh, Mick Foley, Mankind. The mask is a little throwing, but he's clearly a lovable loser. Austin, the badass. Mr. Ass, the asshole. The cocky blonde guy. The guy who thinks he's all that. Kane, he's some sort of a monster. The Undertaker, he's some sort of a dead person. The big boss man, he's some sort of a rough and tough, you know, uh, enforcer, cop, security guard type. Al Snow, he's clearly someone who should be locked up. You know, he's got the, you know, he's, he's a crazy guy. I, you know, and, and, and on and on. I think I beat the point into the ground. So is Triple H like a biker, tough guy? Like I, I, And he's your champion. And I know that this is the early stages of making Triple H something. But I think it's important to, to look at this. He just looks like kind of a, a corporation lackey jobber next to Shane. Shane's center here. You know, Triple H is sort of to his side and a little bit behind him. And he's got the belt and a water bottle. Other than that, I don't know what the fuck this guy's gimmick is. Is it Hydro Man? You know? Does he does he control the elements? Does he keep maybe some, some dangerous liquid in his fucking water bottle that he squirts at me when he's losing? I don't know. But the next point, to get back to the whole point of UPN, is point number 18, and it's a writing point. Because Shane says, Clearly, you're not focused on the tag gold even though you're the tag team champs. And on Raw, we tried to get a number one contender, but we don't have one for Unforgiven. And so tonight, The Rock and Mankind are going to fight for the number one contendership. Now, Shane McMahon gets this writing point because clearly the arc or the desires of this character is to divide and conquer. To defeat these, excuse me, to defeat this powerful duo by making them realize they're individuals, they're not a team, and making them fight one another. Now, I like this next object, or this next information that I want to share with you, um, because it's point number 19, and it's a writing point. Now, when they're booked in a match together, you know, the audience may jump to some conclusions. You see this all the time in actual real film and television, okay? For example, I was just watching uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, all right? And things are looking dim for General Kenobi. He's in a bad spot. He's in a tough spot. Well, the audience knows that, yes, I'm feeling this moment, but there will be a way for Obi-Wan to get out of it, and things will get okay. So, Shane McMahon, as a writing point for point number 19, gets to immediately poke holes and counter the audience expectation, because I believe the expectation is that the good guys will find a way to make everything better. And here's a better example that just popped into my head. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was watching uh, Avengers Endgame. All right, spoilers for the entire Avengers saga, if you haven't seen it. And, you know, Black Widow sacrifices herself to get the Soul Stone. And I think it's Thor, perhaps, once everyone sort of regroups. And he's like, use the stones to bring her back. And, you know, Hawkeye's like, it can't be undone. So Hawkeye is sort of trying to skirt and curtail the audience expectations. The, you know, the the intent of the filmmakers is for the audience to understand that this is a very real thing that has happened. And so they immediately try to establish uh, 
fault in your rational explanation for how they can get themselves out of this situation. Uh, Also, that fantastic Avengers moment leads to the amazing line delivery from Hawkeye where he says, it can't be undone. You go, and you grab your hammer, and you go fly, and you talk to him when he yells at Thor. I just love the way he says, grab your hammer, and you go fly, and you talk to him. It's one of my favorite things ever. But the whole thing, point number 19, it's a writing point. Shane warns him if there's any powder puff stuff, which I guess means if they take it easy on each other, they're immediately going to be suspended for six months without pay. Um, And this can actually happen in the real world. Case in point, Mr. Jeffrey Nero Hardy recently suspended without pay. Get that man some help. Fair is fair, though. Tonight, Triple H faces a man who's no stranger to championships. As Shane McMahon says Triple H will face a man who's no stranger to championships, the Triple H character must be thirsty because he starts to take a drink out of his water bottle. I believe he's doing this so he can prep for a spit take. You guys know a spit take. You know, uh, a nerdy guy on a first date with a hot babe. He's taking a drink of water and he doesn't think the date's going well. And she says, so, do you want to just blow dinner and go fuck? And he goes, and spits the water and says something like, check, please. I think we've all been there, or at least seen something like that before. But Triple H either starts drinking too early, or Shane McMahon over-embellishes his dialogue. Because Shane says, because tonight, and keep in mind, he's drinking this whole time. Tonight, in that very ring. Triple H. At this point, Triple H sort of gives him the side eye, like, come on, dude, I've been drinking this way too long. It's not gonna work, because nobody takes a sip this big. Goes one on one. At this point, the Triple H character has to disengage from drinking the water, because it no longer works. And goes one on one with that bald SOP. Now, Shane is, of course, inferring that Triple H, in the you know, to be fair about things, we'll battle Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight, which is where Triple H should spit the water, and uh, we should all giggle. Now, I'm not going to blame Shane for this, though, because I'm so disappointed in late 99 Triple H first championship run, I'm going to blame him for failing to know how to do a goddamn spit take. Now, the faces are sort of facing off now in the center of the ring, realizing that they're going to have to engage in combat with one another. And so, I give out point number 20, and for fuck's sake, it's the fourth intangible point, and I only have one left. No, wait, it's the third one. The fourth one comes next. Guys, I have been under the weather, and so I am failing you as a podcast host. It's the third intangible point that I've given. It's point number 20, and Mankind says, you know, the last time I was in Wooster, I beat you for the gold. So, for the dozens and dozens of Mankind's fans, how about The Rock makes Mick Foley look good? And he gives the thumbs up. Um, And then The Rock retorts with, Well, that might seem cool to Mankind, but you could take this tag team championship, shine it up, you know, turn it sideways, stick it straight up your candy. As he does the whole thing, all right? Now, this is a fun encounter. 
counter, excuse me, and you might say to yourself, well, Johnny, that's kind of like the last point you gave for intangibility. But after The Rock does his shtick about sidewaysness and assness and the crowd goes crazy, mankind, because he's a good performer, unlike Triple H, takes a couple of beats and then calmly says into the microphone, I gotta be honest with you, Rock. I don't think it's gonna fit. <laughs> we uh, we eventually cut to the back, and the black limo from earlier is still here. And I felt like we were gonna cut to a commercial, but no. The Fink is here, and he confronts Tony Chimmel in the ring and challenges him to a tuxedo match for the announcer's gig on SmackDown. Chimmel refuses. But Howard attacks him anyway, and so the bell rings. And so the next point is point 21, which might be the first time, the first the two intangible points have flown back-to-back together. But this is my fourth one, and so I have one left. I award it to Howard Finkel, because in sort of a moment of sympathy for Howard, I realize how much of a Vince McMahon hanger-on and lackey the man truly was in his real life. Because as he is trying to taunt Chimmel into this matchup, Fink says, pow, and calls Chimmel pow like 14 times, which we all know is a registered trademark of Vince McMahon's speech patterns, pow. So, through osmosis, the Fink has absorbed pow. Poor guy. The match does happen, and it's boring. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to turn this segment into WCW Must Die, where I just make fun of it, but there's nothing to talk about here. It was, it was time not well spent. The next point, and damn it though, it does get another point, and I hate myself. My note even says, remind the audience that you hate yourself for doing this, and I do, and I don't even have to remind myself because I'm feeling it organically as I'm awarding the point, but it's an acting point, and it's awarded to Jerry the King Lawler because (laughs) his performance does add something to the proceedings. He's being an actor as best that he can, and it's not a writing point, which is what the announcers usually get for pushing along the narrative, but (laughs) as the fake loses the first leg to his pants, uh, his underoos, as Tony Stark would say, come into visible range. And the king, and perhaps the highest pitch squeal I've ever heard Jerry the King Lawler use, says, and it's not even funny, it's not even funny, he goes, he's got on red underwear, red underpants! And it's like, this, the fact that the Fink has on, like, red underwear, like, blows him away. Now, looking at my shorts, because I got shorts on and yanking them up just a little bit, I've got on some blue underwear. Or blue, you know, fucking boxer. Is that funny? I don't know. If they were pink, which is, I guess, the least manliest of colors, I don't think that would be funny. It's just the fucking boxer briefs I got on, man. You know? I don't know. The king loved it. It was probably more the fact that the Fink was being embarrassed on TV. And again, through osmosis, most of these WWF long-term guys have probably absorbed Vince McMahon's love for nonsensical uh, toilet humor and uh, embarrassing individuals for entertainment. Um, And that's okay, because maybe something will happen to Vince McMahon one day that will put him in his place. Maybe someday, uh, maybe an investigation, a lawsuit, something will reveal that perhaps Vince McMahon has been doing bad things, you know? Maybe he's been distributing steroids. No, I don't think he's been doing that. Uh, maybe he's been stealing and embezzling from the company. No, I don't think he would do that. He loves the he loves the company too much. I don't know. Maybe he would fuck a paralegal and then pay her not to say anything about it. Although I find that highly unlikely. Because what 
young paralegal in their right mind is fucking a 2018 Vince McMahon. But alas, I'm hypothesizing about things that I'm sure will never happen. Eventually, Tony Chimmel drops an elbow on the fink and gets that last pant leg off to claim victory. We immediately, and I mean immediately, cut to the back. Uh, which means that even though the show is on a tape, they knew goddamn well this was a fucking waste of time. Because as soon as the bell rings, obviously there's no announcement because there's no ring announcer, we cut to the back and it's Kane and X-Pac having a conversation against some chain-link fence, which I always love. And X-Pac is telling Kane that he needs to rethink his stance on firearms, but he also tells him that tonight he's going at it alone. And if Kane helps him, their partnership is over. He is no longer going to be known as Kane's little buddy. Ken Shamrock then arrives at the arena. That's it. Lillian Garcia is in the back with Mankind. Mankind is disturbed by The Rock's title belt to ass scenario, but tonight he's going to do his best to make sure that that transaction doesn't transpire. Finally, we get to some more points and more rapid-fire stuff. Triple H is moping in the back on a couch, talking to China about having to potentially fight Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's a writing point, and it's point number 23. Because Triple H hasn't acted very well, but the writing and the narrative development is in the correct spot. Triple H doesn't know who he can trust. China says, we can trust Shane. Hunter looks her in the eyes and says, I don't know who I can trust. Sowing some seeds there. After all, China is the number one contender for the Intercontinental Championship, which is, hypothetically, the number one contender for the WWF Championships. Too bad this never led to the Mega Powers version 2 explodes, but I think I've gone on about that quite enough. We finally hit a commercial at 33 minutes and 8 seconds into the broadcast. 23 points have been earned. Less than an hour to go and 29 points to gain in order to tie. However, we got 23 points in 33 minutes. So folks, I don't mind telling you, as me and Gene would say, the crew from the WWF seems to really be on fire tonight. Keep in mind, though, I only have one intangible point left, as the tally rests at 11 points for acting, 7 for writing, only 1 for directing, and 4 for intangibles as we move on to the next segment. It starts with a still photo of Chris Jericho facing the Fink. Now, the Fink is in his hilarious red underwear and his guts hanging over it it's you know it's just a still frame which they've got to be doing this to rib howard i mean because the announcers are setting up the scene as we're waiting for it to start and it says moments ago and i just vince is just in the back like (laughs) look at him look at that gut look at those jockeys that waistband i can barely contain it uh but the announcers do say that Chris Jericho had an interesting proposition for Howard Finkel, which, again, it's got to be a rib because he's propositioning him. Uh, it's a quick segment where Jericho says, uh, how about a Y2 Jockey ad campaign? Yeah, very funny, isn't it? Back in the arena now, and the X-Block, X-Block, music hits, and my goodness, Mr. Burgundy, you have a massive erection. Oh, wait, no, Xbox just coming down the aisle with a can of Hanson Energy in his front pocket. And you know what? God, I just love the synergy. I know this is the second time I've talked about the Hanson Energy drink, but it blows me away because having, well, you know what? Oh, hold, just hold that because it's coming. X-Pac is here, and uh, the King lets us know, or Michael Cole, I'm sorry, lets us know that this match is hashtag vengeance for D-O-double-G. 
No, he just sets up the fact that Xbox here to get revenge for Road Dog because Jericho took him out last week, putting him through the table, and they do say that Road Dog's going to be out for a couple of weeks. So we may have seen the last of the D-O-double-G. I do not K to the N to the O to the double D. That's not really how you spell no. I just but it, but it, this, there was synergy there. There was synergy and the sing-songy nature of it. And speaking of synergy, the next point is point number twenty-four, and it's a directing point, which means the director, the performer, and everybody had a whole bunch of synergy. Okay, so and the, here comes the Hans's energy drink conversation. So X-Pac is in the ring and he's posing to the crowd like yeah with his tongue. I mean, you know, you know how X-Pac is. And he does take a drink of his Hanson's energy drink and I'm like, "Good for you, Pac. Make sure you get a lot of good shots of that, okay?" But it's a quick one because we cut right into a last week on previously on SmackDown. Uh, to talk about, and they actually show, this is when Cole sets up the road dog being injured. They show the footage of Jericho doing it, and that's fine. It makes complete sense, but that's not the directing point. All right, now follow me. I got to get into the weeds on this one, but it's important to explain why the point's here. After the video fades away, we go back into the arena, and Pac is still waiting to do his pyro. Now, in all actuality, it's a tape show, so I'm sure they just inserted the footage and then cut right back to where they were, okay? And... As he's doing his pyro, I was thinking to myself, it's really too bad that he can't do it with the energy drink in his hand because it's a can, you know, and that the fucking energy drink would shoot and spill everywhere. And I guess that wouldn't be a terrible visual, but they don't probably want to pay to see you throw it around and have it spill out onto the ring canvas, okay? After the last crotch chop, he turns around and Tony Chimmel, the announcer who was previously victorious in the tuxedo match, hands him the energy drink, and Pac turns around, spikes the camera, but not in a ridiculous way, and he takes a huge swig right for the camera. Now, I'm known to break away from my legit commentary sometimes and make jokes. This is no joke. Wrestlers being sponsored by an individual brand or product absolutely should be a thing, and I feel like the WWE should encourage this. I mean... Xavier Woods, sponsored by Twitch, just for example, because I think he's got that up, up, down, down show on Twitch. Okay, uh, here comes Xavier Woods for a U.S. championship match. Oh, Xavier Woods is sponsored by G4 Games or pick something. I mean, seriously, Square Enix presents Xavier Woods. Now, that, that again, I'm not trying to cut shtick here. What a fantastic way to let these individuals get a little bit of extra money. And maybe there's a convenience fee, which is not the right word, or some sort of uh, you know cut that WWE has to get because you, the actor or the performer, are advertising. And the only reason you're able to have this global global platform is because you're on our stage. So we get a percentage of what you earn, but it's a nominal fee you're not i might not be using that word properly it's you know a typical like non-intrusive like two percent three percent and hey money's money but at the same time uh it, sure let's do it because who knows um and of course your brand sponsorship i suppose would have to be in line with wwe's corporate values you know if if Pornhub wants to sponsor Val Venus or something like that, it's probably not going to fly. Uh, well, yeah, but, but you get what I'm saying, though. I just, I think it's such a missed opportunity and such an interesting way to get different companies involved with WWE. Because what if 
Twitch uh, sees a massive, you know, what if there's correlation and analytics and numbers that reveal that Xavier Woods' Twitch sponsorship has resulted in more people coming to Twitch? And then it's like, well, God, maybe we should sponsor a pay-per-view or something like that. It just seems to lend itself naturally to that. And I just don't understand why they wouldn't want to be a thing. It drives me bonkers that they've got all their talent set up with this uh, basically non-compete to the external world anything that you have to do should be approved etc etc and um it it just it doesn't make sense to me i don't see why anybody would want to do that um it it seems like a a great way to shut down a potential audience that you don't even know about because you have so many different individuals uh that you have performing on your show all of them with different fan bases for different reasons and they all need different products. I just, I don't know. Like maybe something, I, I think I've beaten the point into the ground. But the just I was going to just give the concrete example I was going to give and then I'm done. And then it's completely over. You know, someone that wants to sponsor Rhea Ripley, you know, may not be uh, the same person that wants to sponsor. Uh, what's a good contrast? Not in the content of their character, the person, but in the content of their on-screen character. Um, fuck, I don't know. Dominic Mysterio is the first person that popped into my head because I was going to say Rey Mysterio because I know Rey Mysterio has done some like sponsorships like uh, with God with beer and stuff like that, I think. Yeah. So holy shit, that's probably why he was on a top. <laughs> wow, that is so weird. That's probably why he was on the tip of my tongue. So my brain was telling me what I needed to say. Uh, but yeah, you know, perhaps the Rhea Ripley audience wants something different from the Rey Mysterio audience. The Mexican beer, or the beer that's from Mexico, the Mexican beer. I'm not saying that like, ooh, Mexican pizza. I went to get a Mexican pizza the other day, and a Taco Bell speaker is like, oh, sorry, we are sold out of the Mexican pizza. And I was kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. But I was like, I'm sorry. And they're like, why are you sorry? And I'm like, because you probably have to say that incessantly, you know, as your day progresses, because... Um, you know, a lot, everybody's ordering the Mexican pizza and she just kind of laughed and was like, that's funny. And I was like, it's not that funny, but you know, don't get mad at the person who has to tell you there's no Mexican pizza, you know, empathize with the fact that they have to spend countless sentences that have to say countless sentences that begin with, I'm sorry, we're all out of Mexican pizzas. It doesn't have to be a thing of anger, but that's why point number 24 was awarded. Um, it was just a fantastic, it was, it was Directing might not be the best way to phrase it, but to me, that's where it fits in the scope of this project because it's not an intangible point because this should appeal to anyone that has a brain, not just me, okay? Uh, So we'll call it set direction. You know, Chimmel knew what he needed to do and the uh, hard cam knew to keep the camera on Pac until he was completely done drinking this drink. We move on now, not to a point, but something I desperately wanted to just throw out there. I love how the early Y2J started countdown started all the way up at 10. And I want to know who designed this countdown sound. The They're iconic sounds, and there's various like modulations of them throughout history. But this OG one hits really hard. It kind of feels like a heartbeat. Um, and it gets me pumped because I would, I don't know, like, the best way I can describe it is his first appearance, like it's a very violent 
sounding countdown. And I feel like they're still using that one here. But go back and watch that clip of Jericho's arrival. The countdown, when they get to the end, it's like loud and it's a continuous pulse. And it's almost like scary. Like if you were in a fucking horror movie and this started happening, I mean, take me now. I'm done. Just get me the fuck out of here. Anywho... They show a, uh, or not they show, I was going to say they show a preview for Unforgiven, but that's not what my note represents. Uh, my note is this is an Unforgiven preview match, and then it says LOL afterwards, which I think I'm supposed to indicate is a funny thing, because obviously we're building to Jericho and uh, Shamrock for the pay-per-view. You and I know that that doesn't happen. It's X-Pac and Jericho, but I can see why they booked it. And I know historically this is like the famous time in Jericho's career where he was wrestling X-Pac all the time and Pac was trying to prove to, uh, you know, that Jericho was a, a value to the company. Uh, because of, and, and, and I kind of like that synergy because I like that X-Pac's another smaller competitor who's trying to get over another smaller competitor and what have you. It just seemed to kind of make sense. Uh, Jericho stalls outside. Uh, though in his entrance and he's taken a while to get in the ring and this is when point number 25 is awarded and it's a writing point because even though it's a funny thing it adds to the character of Chris Jericho now the king says something stupid about Jericho's hair saying it's a he's like look at look at Jericho with that something about Mary hairstyle which is his like fountain thing and then Cole says well king I actually spoke to Jericho about that earlier and Jericho calls it the European style now, there's nothing wrong with liking something uh, that's from somewhere you're not. Because I know Jericho's Canadian, I'm American, the European style, etc., etc. It's like, but it simultaneously sounds like Jericho thinks he's doing something hoity-toity and dare I say hipsterish before hipsterish was a thing. Um, I don't know. It just I, I it it it, la- it added a very realistic layer to the character, and I'm actually curious where that soundbite came from. Um, I'd love to ask Cole or Jericho, but I doubt either one of them remembers. And I doubt I'd ask him that, like, let's say some magic world. It's like, hey, you get to ask Michael Cole what question. He'd look at me and be like, get this man out of my face. And then security would come and drag me away. And Michael Cole, it'd be the most powerful he ever felt in his life. And he'd go home and have the best sex of his life ever, I bet, because he felt really empowered because he, he finally found the one person that he could push around. And it was me. So I'm willing to do it for Michael. He deserves one. He's, he's taken a lot of shit over the years. And all he's doing is what they've asked him to do. And speaking of what they... well, You know what? That's not a very good transition. Oh, okay. Here's a better one. He's going to go home. Uh, and it's going to be uh, the best sex he's ever had in his entire life. It'll be the first time it's ever happened. And hey, speaking of the first time that ever happened, the next point is the first ever combo point. Because it's point number 26 and 27 simultaneously for the exact same thing. Ken Shamrock comes down uh, to the ring before the bell rings. So this is not a disqualification scenario. And he tries to go after Jericho and Jericho flees the ring. X-Pac holds him back and pleads with him not to attack Jericho. Now, it's an interesting setup. And the acting point, because it's two points here, the acting point is for the way that X-Pac pleads with Shamrock. Because I love this idea of a babyface trying to stop another babyface from interfering in the match. Because if you think about it, babyfaces are here to win and to win championships and prove they're the best because they're the babyfaces. So I kind of like the idea that if you believe that this league 
Okay, you have to win matches to get championship shots. You have to win championships to make more money. You got to make more money to take care of your family and donate to your favorite charities and and shit like that. So I love this idea that's in my head that Pac is trying to win this match for his own sort of like career trajectory. And it's like, dude, I understand, you know, hey, man. It's, there's multiple layers here. I need to win this match, dude. And then there's you don't want to do this. You could get suspended and not win it and not get any money to feed your family, dude. That's how X-Pac sounds. I don't, he hangs out with Hulk Hogan a lot back in the day, so that's why he ends the sentence with dude. But the writing point is because we know that the character of X-Pac actually has motives here. And these motives are he desperately needs to have this match with Chris Jericho tonight because he desperately needs to prove himself to Kane and to himself because they set this up earlier in the interview. And to top it off, when Ken is finally calmed down by X-Pac and is leaving, X-Pac keeps an eye on him as he's walking down the aisle to make sure he goes back. It's at this moment Jericho chooses to sneak attack Pac. Pac sees it in the Ovaltron, immediately spins around and hits a pretty nasty, uh, not nasty in a way that it's like, uh, but it looks good, but you could tell it's a safe spin kick that, you know, connects with Jericho's face, but in a safe show me ship type of way. And those are two points for one thing happening. And, you know, I'm pleased, very pleased. I cannot believe how much... Like, everyone seems to be firing. You expect Foley to get points, Rock to get points. But here we got X-Pac, Jericho, a little bit of Shamrock, uh, China, Billy Gunn coming through with some points. Mid-card. You have a mid-card, you have a show, people. You have a mid-card, you have a show. 60 seconds in, these guys are going balls to the wall, but the unholy alliance arrives and watches from the stage. This leads to point number 28. Chris Jericho is on the top rope, or excuse me, on the top turnbuckle. I always say the top rope. I don't know why. Old habits, I guess. He's on the turnbuckle. He's prepping for a moonsault on the uh, turnbuckle that's on the hard cam side. All right? So he's over by the timekeeper. X-Pac runs and hits a drop kick. As he's in the air, he makes sure to extend the leg that's most vertical so he can hit Jericho up higher. So Jericho can take a full flip so he can land on his chest slash face on the outside to sell the impact. It's an acting point, and it's for Jericho originally, but having respoken it, they're sharing it. That doesn't really mean anything because Pac gets that extension necessary and actually acts. Like, you know, I mean, these guys are like your best actor candidates on this show because their match, even though it's short, it's like their acting is like, you know, using acting to describe their their wrestling style. It's just very entertaining to me. I don't know why. It just hit me in the right spot. And I know that obviously if you, the lightning quick ring action is fine, but if you got don't have guys out like they're like uh, Rock, Mankind, Shane, you're like doing the storylines, you have nothing. So it's just kind of weird because I'm usually a talky-talky type of guy. But, I don't know, I'm really enjoying the show, so I guess I just love all of it. Funny gag, King says that X-Pac is living in the land of the Giants, and he's developed FIFA-phobia. <laughs> it's dumb, but I it, I don't know. I'd much rather have FIFA-phobia than puppies, all right? Um, and then, it's so cute that I say cute because I'm kind of being ridiculous about it, but uh, Jericho gets X-Pac on the, the ring, uh, gets him down on the ring, and like does a stomp, like a just real, like, you're garbage, like stomp. And then he just, instead of doing the chest pin, he just yells, come on, baby! I just love, come on, baby. 
Um, a, hits a, a Pac, Pac, goodness, Jericho hits a lion salt, which uh, Michael Cole calls athletic maneuver by Jericho. Uh, and then the Big Show runs in and clotheslines X-Pac, and Pac wins by disqualification. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, they get cut off early. This is fine, though. If you're hungry for it, I'd recommend checking out their Unforgiven match. If I recall, it's gotten good reviews on uh, North-South and PTBM when I listen to stuff like that. So it's one of those matches I feel like that uh, they, I don't know, it's like, they, is it the match that, like, saved Jericho or something like that? I don't remember. I'm not trying to tell tales out of school or make shit up, so I apologize. Now, uh, the next point actually comes right here as Big Show is running in the ring. But because it's an intangible point and it has nothing to do with wrestling, I'm just going to pause it for a second. Uh, show is obviously all over Pac. And um, Shamrock comes down and chases away Jericho. They run through the crowd. Kane does save the day and he beats up Show and kind of clears the ring and everything like that. The Undertaker gets on the mic and tells Kane that he becomes weaker as X-Pac becomes weaker. And now he's at his weakest. We cut back to China and Triple H banging on Shane McMahon's locker room door, trying to get answers. We cut to the back where the limo is in the parking lot, and we go to commercial at about 43 minutes in with about 47 minutes left. Now, here comes the next point that I skipped over, which also might be the first time I've ever wanted to clear a segment out before I delivered a point. But here's why. Point number 29, it's an intangible point. It's my very last one. I debated about whether doing this, but it's the intangible points. They're for me, and damn it, that's that's a great way to describe this. Um, but it takes me back. It takes me back to this point in time, and it makes me happy to be watching this wrestling show, so I, I guess it's relevant. There's a dude in the front row that has a sign that says 9-9-99, and on this sign are some spinny red lines. And I'm saying that purposely to be vague. If anyone out there remembers, 9999 or September 9th, 1999, uh, was a huge day in the video gaming community for a couple of reasons. Now, this person's sign, the red lines, are the logo of the Sega Dreamcast, <laughs> which, as a, which also guest stars in a fantastic episode of South Park when everyone's obsessed with Sega Dreamcast, which is why to this day I still say Sega Dreamcast instead of Sega Dreamcast. But the Sega Dreamcast was set to debut on this day. You want to talk about brand synergy. I mean, you're a gamer, and you're kind of like 90s cool, poochy skateboarding style, and the release date's 9999, which is like my favorite number, bro. Like, shit, what an awesome marketing campaign. Um, And I still like, yeah, I just remember the commercials. It just really takes me back to another point in time in my life, which was fun uh, to, to reminisce about. I guess I'm getting old to a point where I enjoy that. But... $9,999 on the flip side. That's video game hardware. Video game software that was released on the same day. Motherfucking Final Fantasy VIII. Which, granted, is not my favorite. But, good lord. It was the follow-up to seven, And you want to talk about anticipation at a fucking fever pitch. Because Final Fantasy VII was the game that made me realize that video games were another form of art. Which we can do a podcast about some other time. But now that that last point has been given, it's time for the point summary. 29 points have been awarded. 13 for acting, 9 for writing, 2 for directing, and as it stands now, all 5 intangible points have been used. But that's a good thing. 
because that means that they earn them, and that means that things are firing on all cylinders. And speaking of firing on all cylinders, folks, things have been going swell here in the Aqua Cave, and that's right, I said swell. And I am just so proud to announce uh, that we've partnered with our first sponsor here on the show. We're going to step away just for a moment for a brief advertisement, but hey, thanks for not fast-forwarding through the commercials. I guarantee you probably won't regret it. But let's hear from our sponsors. Hey there, folks. Johnny C. here. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, things sure can get hectic sometimes. You know how it is. After the 9 to 5 daily grind, you come home to find a whole new workday has just begun. Carpools. Lawn work. Laundry. And in between all of that, who has time to make dinner for the youngins? Well, that's when I reach out to our newest sponsor here in the Aqua Cave. Nero's Pizza! Now, Nero's Pizza offers a large array of specialty pizzas that are sure to be crowd pleasers. Like Pepperoni and Vicodin. The Poetry in Motion. Or Sausage and black tar heroin. The charismatic enigma. No time to chew that food though? No problem, because Nero's offers a wide array of liquid dinners as well. Like the 44 ounce suicide dive. That's 44 ounces of crystal clear vodka with just a pinch of ice on top. And with their on time delivery guarantee, Your order is always sure to arrive on time, no matter what toll it takes on the innocent pedestrians in your neighborhood. So when you're ready to put your hunger behind bars, call Nero's. That's 1-999-G-E-T-H-E-L-P. That's 1-99-G-E-T-H-E-L-P. And you know what, folks? You'll be glad that you did. UPN fans, we are back, and thanks so much for sticking with us through the little paid adverts, because you know we absolutely have to get the money collected around here. But I'll tell you what, folks, I would not advertise a product I do not believe in. I absolutely fucking love the taste of Nero's Pizza. Um, and it's great, too, but I'll tell you what, it's so filling It's like a Thanksgiving dinner every time we order a pizza. I'm a big pepperoni fan, and I was a little hesitant about the pepperoni and Vicodin pizza because, you know, I'm kind of a picky eater, and I just usually like pepperoni. But I went for it, and I loved it. But it was so filling, I slept for hours after eating just one slice. It's absolutely worth your time and your money, but I know that your money is valuable. And so we've got a special offer only for listeners of Aqua Cave Podcast. You're going to be so happy about this deal. You're going to want to absolutely scream it from the, well, promo code ROOFTOPS. So scream your heart out with promo code ROOFTOPS, only at Nero's Pizza. We're back, and Ken Shamrock is once again destroying things backstage. It's no wonder he would eventually get released. He's causing a lot of property damage. But Triple H 
is already on the ring apron doing his water spit. His entrance has taken place during this commercial break, which I don't actually have a problem with, and it's not worth points. She shouldn't spend a lot of time on it. But I spoke earlier about Triple H's positioning within this episode. Boy, does this go to reiterate it. He's the goddamn World Wrestling Federation champion. If you're going to cut or save time on a taped show because maybe it didn't run the way it was supposed to, cut something else. Figure a way out. Figure out a way to do it. Now, there's a talking head segment coming up in just a few moments after this segment where uh, Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler introduce the next video they're going to play. Maybe just have them, I don't know, do that. Redub that in a voiceover while with a crowd shot. Like, folks, there was some altercation. You know, folks, we got a video from the big boss man earlier today. Let's go to the footage, as opposed to the which takes 10 seconds, as opposed to the minute they spend setting up. But that's not this segment. He just looks like a jobber and he's the champ, and I don't like it. The next point, oh, Shane McMahon comes down to join the fray as well. The next point is for Shane McMahon, and it's a writing point, and it's point number 30. Shane gets on the stick and says he believes that he is the game, that being Triple H, and should be the champion. But if there's one thing that Vince taught me that was worth a damn, you've got to deliver for the fans. They deserve a WWF title match. Now look, yeah, this this whole setup is a swerve, okay? But if you want to explain why he did what he did, and it's part of a larger story indicating that Triple H has a has a the puppet master of the WWF in his back pocket. This is the extra icing on the cake to reiterate it for your fans. The Shane McMahon character believes that he's giving the fans what they deserve, which is a WWF title championship match. He doesn't want to make the WWF a joke, but at the same time, he's going to make sure his champ stays in power. His opponent is indeed the light heavyweight champion of the world, Gilberg. And Gilberg gets his normal entrance, and he, like like I said, he's a light heavyweight champion, so like Shane had mentioned, he's no stranger to championships. He is bald. I don't know if he's an SOB, but I've never negotiated a contract with Gilberg, all right? He looks a little rough around the edges, so he may indeed be a bald SOB. The King ponders if this is title for title, which just makes me laugh. But the next point is point 31, and it's a directing point because we get the WWF championship graphic, you know, where it's like, and the WWF at the time logo spins, indicating that this is a championship match. Now, this is standard fare for a championship match. Why the hell is it getting a director's point? But it does indeed show that this is a pre-planned ruse that has all the bells and whistles set up. It is an official championship match. It will count as a defense for Triple H. Thus, if that's still a thing, making it the required 30-day title defense. So he may not even have to defend it unforgiven. If a challenger or a number one contender is declared for unforgiven, he will. But maybe there's a plan. We'll get to that when it matters. Um, Right as the bell rings, there's a spear. And it just made me laugh. Um, uh, Goldberg, Gilbert, excuse me, goes for the jackhammer, but Triple H reverses the jackhammer position into a front suplex of his own. And the next point is point 32, and it's an acting point. Triple H immediately takes control and gets Gilbert in the corner. And what does he do? He does the mud hole stomping. Now, this is played into that narrative that was established last week that Triple H is pretty much just emulating Stone Cold Steve Austin with his violence and his aggression and his rise to the top. 
Uh, and I kind of like the idea that Triple H is doing that, and it's a subtlety here that he's kind of stealing a move from the Rattlesnake. But again, this is stuff that I'd completely forgotten about. Um, so I'm really enjoying it quite a bit, and I love the subtlety that Triple H is just doing whatever it takes a la Austin. And my goodness, fans, is this episode of UPN, which is the serious show, suddenly going to devolve into an episode of Kingfish? I hope not. But Shane McMahon does indeed join commentary. And this might be a great opportunity to mention that Kingfish is a show here on the Aqua Cave that will be reviewing each episode of Sunday Night Heat from the very beginning up until Shane McMahon leaves commentary in October when he becomes a real character in the show. So far, we've got a couple episodes out there for you. They've been fun, quick watches for me. They're very nostalgic. Every once in a while, I might tell an old story or two. But check out the latest episode, uh where I tell the story of how I saw first-hand photographs of Shane McMahon's wedding because I worked with someone related to the McMahon family. Whoa, that is a hell of a tease. Uh, The next point is point 33, and it's an acting point because on commentary, Shane McMahon lays out possible scenarios for Unforgiven. He's like, we could be getting Gilbert versus The Rock, perhaps Gilbert versus Mankind. And look... No, it's not going to happen, but Shane McMahon is literally getting the acting point because he's pulling off quite a decent performance here. He's doing a really good example of a bullshit heel that, excuse me, of a heel that believes their own bullshit, okay? Um, and, And that's my favorite type of heel, a heel that believes that what they're saying is completely normal and nominal, and it's not an evil thing at all. (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, and I was debating whether or not to give the point for this, but it's absolutely solidified because after he's done explaining the possible scenarios, Gilbert hits another spear, and Shane gets very, and I'm doing the finger quotes, concerned on commentary, like, oh no, come on, Triple H, get up, come on, you're the champion, <laughs> like stuff like that, like he's really worried that the title might be in danger, and it was just kind of funny. Uh, you know, Triple H gets an easy pinfall victory on Gilberg after this. It's nothing really worth talking about. Um, he does take the chair to Gilberg afterwards and goes after the knee, just like he did on Austin. Again, reiterating this Austin-Triple H storyline that is indeed running in the background of these SmackDown episodes. We cut to the limo in the back. We now know that Triple H's opponent wasn't in there. So who, who could it be now? <laughs> I won't sing anymore because, again, this is a serious show. And this is the moment that I was talking about earlier. We cut to the announcers and they do a talking head segment, sort of recapping the life and times of Al Snow, Pepper, and the Big Boss Man. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like I said, all they're doing is, um, you know, setting up a video that they received that they haven't watched yet that they that they understand was filmed earlier today in the Big Boss Man's hotel room. Now... If someone sends me a video and says, this is something I filmed earlier today in my hotel room, I'd probably vet it before I air it on national television. But, you know, irrelevant and aside from the point here. On Raw, the big boss man promised to hand Pepper to Al Snow on SmackDown, and that's what this video is allegedly supposed to be. The next point is point 34, and it's an acting point. And it's literally for everything the big boss man does in this video segment. His his character stuff is completely on par. And he's a thousand percent committed to what he's about to do. His performance elevates what he's about to do because it's not good. It's not great. And he, 
the big boss man's kind of a fantastic ad libber as well, which is something that that generation absolutely carries with them. You know, they're not scripting promos. These guys had to be sharp on their feet. They had to be in character 24-7, you know, give or t- if you pardon the expression. But I really believe that, that comes through in a bullshit segment like this. So like I said, it's acting for the boss man. He's remorseful about this entire situation. He just wanted to be taken seriously as a hardcore title contender, and he had to get Al Snow's attention. He offers Al some food while they wait for the groomer to return with the dog. Okay, and Bossman's like, "Come on, just take a load off, have a bite to eat." Like, I'm really sorry about all this. And Al's just like, "Fine, I'll sit here and eat, but don't talk to me. Just leave me alone." Like, I'll sit here and just wait. I don't want to be here anyway, but whatever. If it'll shut you up, whatever. Because you got to explain out eating. Okay, um, and it is dumb, like I mentioned. But the boss man, he's ad libbing here. Yeah, I got this at Uncle Harry's. It's a great restaurant I go to when we come to Massachusetts. I'll be, you know, be careful though. Uh, you know, it's cooked well. Try not to get any paws stuck in your teeth when you take a bite there. And Al Snow kind of looks at him. And Boss Man's like, that's right, Al. You're eating 100% grade A pepper. And yes, we all know this. It's gone down in infamy. This is the segment where Al Snow eats cooked dog, his own dog, that the big Boss Man has prepared for him. It's a delicacy. It takes a turn for the worse because Al Snow starts puking. And I don't know about you. I'm just one of those folks. I'm not dealing with puke. Ironically enough, it's true. When you have to pull through and push through, you just sort of deal with it. Because when my kids puke, it's like, eh, it's got to get cleaned up. You know. But anybody else, fuck that. I'm getting the hell out of here. The boss man beats on Al as he vomits, which is fucking gross, with his uh, nightstick. And... He gives the classic, Pepper's gone straight to hell. Like, it's the same shit he does with the boss, man. He's just great. Or, excuse me, with the big show. Excuse me. Back in the winter of 98. So, good stuff here. On the way out, uh, the boss man grabs a piece of Pepper, eats it, and says it does indeed taste like chicken. The next point is point 35, and it's a directing point, believe it or not. And it takes place immediately after we cut back from this taped segment. The sort of taped segment video, yeah, you know, it wipes off the screen like a screen transition, and we're back, and it here's the directing point. It's a kind of like a freeze frame directly on Jerry the King Lawler's face. Who is the evil heel? You know, he's the conniving bad guy commentator, and his eyes are as wide as you can fucking have them and he's in shock. And he's not in shock to make a gag. You know, the the announcers are supposed to be in character, like appalled by what they've just seen. And Cole starts coughing and gagging. And they really sell it well. But here's the thing. The director made a choice to accentuate that performance of Jerry Lawler and use it to tell the story. And that's why it gets a directing point. Shamrock, again, in the back, is still on the hunt, breaking shit. But here comes Mick Foley for the number one contendership match. Now, the next point, we're going to just get to the points here. The point is point 36, and it's an acting point. During the match, there's brawling on the outside, and The Rock yells at a cameraman, Get out of The Rock's way! Which is just another example that these guys live in their character, and it's a completely different world, and they're prepared for that. It's a completely different world than it is now. The next point is a writing point, and it's awarded to Michael Cole, and it's point 37. 
he recaps the trilogy, if you will, for any viewers who may not be aware of the history between The Rock and Mankind, and it's good world building. You know, this is stuff you do in uh, high-concept movies and TV shows like Dune or Star Wars, where you make it seem like these folks live in a real world, even though it's a world you can't possibly imagine living in. Now, uh, in the trilogy being the I Quit match, the Halftime Heat, and the Last Man Standing, I know they fought more, but that's what he chooses to focus on, and I think that's fine. That trilogy tells a narrative, a, a full story, if you will. And... I do want to take the second to point out, though, that even though I've awarded a writing point to Cole for this, he's bad on commentary tonight, and it has nothing to do with personal taste. It's little, subtle things. Like, for example, in this match, The Rock gets whipped into the steel steps by Mankind, and he calls it a ste- uh, He says The Rock is getting whipped into the steel chairs. Now, look, I make mistakes and flubs and stutter over my words. Like, I get it. I'm not trying to throw shade at that. But... The other damning evidence is that I'm watching this stuff with the closed captions on, and a lot of Cole's words get the indistinct treatment, which is a gag from WW Must Die, but it's true. A lot of times when the captioner can't make out what people are saying, they just put indistinct in brackets and move on with their lives. But that should never happen to your announcers. They're talking into microphones. They need to make sure that they enunciate what they're saying in a clear way so that it can be picked up by not only the viewer who is hearing enabled, but it should be able to be typed out by the closed captioners. Uh, It happens a lot when Cole gets excited and he talks fast as well. So keep it under control, Michael. You'll get better. You'll get there. The next point is point number 38, and it's an acting point. Because during this match... Mankind gets on headset. Uh, it's actually right after he throws the rocket to the steps. And he says this calmly. Um, you know, I didn't want to do it, but the rock has forced my hand. And then smack, the rock gets him and takes the headset. So it's one acting point, but Foley and the rock earn it. And the rock gets on headset and says, you want to be a fray stealer? Well, here's for the dozens. And then he punches Mankind. And dozens! And then he slams his face into the table. Uh, Eventually, they get back into the ring for the finishing sequence. Mankind gets Sako into the Rock's mouth. And the Rock's arms flail around. And one of these arms hits the ref and takes him out. So Shane immediately runs down and indicates he's going to be the special guest referee. And just as a side note, his refereeing hand movements really crack me up. Because he's, he's being real loud with his hands. Like, oh my god, that's a submission scenario. Rock, what do you say? What do you say? Rock, what do you say? Like, it's just very funny. Uh, a transition. Uh, or I shouldn't say call it a transition. The Rock counters with a rock bottom. And both men are down. So Shane waves Triple H and China down. And as Triple H and China beat on Foley and the Ruck, Shane sort of walks away from the action and does the old crooked referee, oh man, something is in my eye. And he kind of doesn't look. And then he turns and acts surprised to see, uh, you know, Triple H and China getting attacked by the Rock and Mankind because they've sort of turned the tide. And he calls for the bell, gets on the mic and indicates it's a double DQ for battling outside forces or battling and causing outside interference. So he's kind of subtly blaming the Rock and Mankind for this double DQ scenario and that neither of them get to now go to Unforgiven. We head to commercial 
59 minutes gone. There's exactly 30 minutes left to go, and we're at 38 points. We need 14 to tie. The breakdown stands at 18 for acting, 11 for writing, 4 for directing now, and of course, 5 intangible points have been spent. It's interesting if you look at the breakdown for this episode because 18 of the points are for acting, and the other three categories equal 20, so everything else is at 20. It's a little bit skewed towards acting this week, but we find that. It's the Attitude Era. I'm not really surprised. Uh, Back from commercial, and we cut again to Shamrock destroying stuff backstage. Guys, these segments are quick, but they're doing nothing for me. Lillian interviews Shane McMahon. He says he made a mistake. Uh, He's reviewed the footage, and he may owe The Rock and Mankind a make good. So if you excuse me, I'm going to go make things right with the tag team champions. And hey, earlier we made a gag that Pornhub could sponsor Val Venus, and wouldn't you know, here comes Val Venus. But during his entrance, we get the next point. It's point 39, and it's a writing point, because Jerry the King Lawler puts over the real-world implications of how Shane McMahon is a brilliant owner of the WWF. You never see a baseball umpire admit a blown call and do something to make it right. And again, just like the boss man earlier, and Shane McMahon earlier as well, This is a great example of a heel believing their own bullshit. And I think that's kind of a lost art, and maybe that's why it stands out to me, and that's why I'm giving it the points. So Self-Righteous Heels has sort of been a backbone of this entire episode, and so, for some reason, has been talk of sponsorship. Well, that's just kind of where the show took us. With that in mind, SmackDown is now brought to us by three very specific sponsors. Okay, I'm going to give you hints for each one of them. The first one is very much a thing of its time. The second one is something I wouldn't be surprised to see still advertised as a sponsor to this very day. The third is also a thing of the time, but only because this product was just released, and it's a uh, product that they're marketing for self-gains, if you will. So, can't, can't take too much time. 1-800-COLLECT, the one that's very much a thing of its time. Castrol GTX, the one I wouldn't be surprised to see. And WWF The Music Volume 3. Obviously, self-promotion, but also something that was just recently released. Well, folks, Ken Shamrock's music hits, and we know that uh, Pornhub's Val Venus is already in the ring at this point. I guess this match will be hashtag Ryan's Revenge. Now, Shamrock does come down to the ring to wrestle, and he does come to the ring in jeans to wrestle. So would that make him Kenum Shamrock? I'll see myself out now. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about the joke. So, uh, speaking of jokes, really quickly, let's play fun with closed captions. A game, or a gag, imported from WCW Must Die, but it was too hilarious to pass up, in my opinion. Michael Cole says, Val Venus, the consummate athlete. And on closed captions, we get, Val Venus, the continental athlete. So, Val Venus is a pretty good athlete, but don't expect any bacon, all right? Because he's just continental. <laughs> A Val Venus might be quite continental, but you won't find bacon on him. That's, uh, diamonds, Sara. So this concludes Fun With Closed Captions. After about three minutes, Val Venus makes Ken Shamrock tap to the ankle lock. And I don't believe I've ever done this before, but... I'm giving point number 40, and it's an acting point. And I don't feel that it's worth our time to go through this match beat by beat and blow by blow. I don't think any one individual thing was worth anything. And I don't say that to be mean. But they had a match, and it gelled with the Shamrock story that's been going on throughout the evening. Shamrock looked like a monster, 
but he didn't look invincible, which is important, uh, because you can't just throw away Val Venus. Uh, we know from a metatextual standpoint that uh, Val's going to do stuff in the higher mid-card here soon. But Val does tap, but he doesn't look bad doing it, and he doesn't look stupid either, because in this match, even though it's short, his goal as the heel is to absolutely use Ken's rage and quote-unquote stupidity against him, and he does. And he adjusted his style to gel with Angry Shamrock. So, hey, good for them. Three minutes, acting point. But Shamrock won't let go, and the ref calls for the bell, like, to speed up, to do the, oh my god, someone help. Steve Blackman answers the call, much like the Ghostbusters, but he's... Got no chance in hell against Shamrock, but he has he does have nunchucks, but doesn't get to use them. Shamrock throws him in a belly-to-belly, and Shamrock grabs the nunchucks and punches him in the face with him. And then he starts just tossing these guys around like a madman, throwing plexes and tosses and stuff. And he's in here like a beast, and Shamrock is, is built so interesting because he's kind of like, I don't want to say he's like a tank, but like, he's not, I don't know how tall the man is, but, you know, when you talk about pro wrestling, he's not a giant, okay? But of course, he's built like a brick shithouse, and he looks like Ben Affleck's Batman. And I swear to you, I wrote this all, this next segment, you might come back and be like, Johnny, you're just fucking reaching, and you're just doing that shit you do, but hear me out. In my head, I'm like, damn, he's a tank, like Ben Affleck's Batman. And that's what's in my head, and that's just how my brain works. And it's probably what sets this next couple of minutes of SmackDown down the path that I'm going to take it on, but I can't help how my brain works. Point number 41 is next, and it's a directing point. As Shamrock stands dominant in the ring after tossing these guys around, the, the countdown clock starts. Now, this is crazy because I've, I spoke ad nauseum earlier about how the countdown clock really hit me in a different spot back in its early iterations, the way it sounds, the way it's treated by the camera and stuff like that. So the countdown starts, and maybe one number hits like, blah, blah. And then the camera, like Shamrock immediately turns to the entranceway and he's like waiting now. Like, this is it. I've drawn out the villain. The camera whip pans over to the entrance for the last like two chimes of the countdown. The concussion bombs go off and Jericho is standing there. Okay. But this whole thing between Shamrock looking the way he did, him then acknowledging that the man or the villain he was waiting for was coming now, and the countdown clock getting me pumped, this felt like the start of the fight in the third act between the superhero and the supervillain, where the hero goes through the gang or like the sub-bosses, and now the audience know that the conflict that they paid to see is finally here. And damn it, I swear to God, to keep this Shamrock looks like Bat, you know, Affleck's Batman thing going, Jericho... After he does the pose and spins, he just kind of stands there and smiles with this eerie smile on his face for like four seconds. And that takes this thing in my head even further. Um, and, and he does all this before he says anything to Shamrock. So the directing point, just to sum this whole thing up, is for the clock countdown and the camera movement uh, making me feel the moment that they were trying to create between two uh, actors. Okay, Jericho basically says, you want me, follow me. All right. Now, uh, Shamrock does chase after and to stall for just a second so we can uh, make it realistic that Shamrock gets to the parking lot. Steve Blackman picks up uh, Val Venus and gives him a suplex for some reason. I don't know. It didn't make a... I mean, you know, obviously it's there just to stall. I don't know what it does or what storyline it is or anything like that, but it happened, so I figured I'd mention it. Okay. Um, When we immediately cut to the parking lot, 
the next point is awarded. It's point number 42, and it's an acting point, and it's for Howard Finkel because with the camera's behind Shamrock, and we see him walking towards Chris Jericho, and I'm doing the finger quotes thing here. It looks like a goddamn mannequin, all right? But it's not. It's the Fink in a sparkly shirt with a very feminine blonde wig. And, you know, he's doing the whole Jericho arm cross pose <laughs> just to lure Shamrock in. But the way the way he's standing, like, I, it's so brilliant because it looks like <laughs> it's the Fink, but it looks like Jericho could have legitimately taken the time to set up a fucking Chris Jericho mannequin, like something the Coyote would do for the Roadrunner. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, but the Fink does it so well. That's why he gets the acting point. He plays it off so well he could be a mannequin. And point number 43, uh, well, Jericho runs it with a shovel and, and Shamrock's out, okay? The next point is point 43. And if this Batman metaphor couldn't die, Jericho puts Shamrock in the walls of Jericho and starts cranking it hard. He calls the Fink over and yells, take the pictures, get his face, get him in pain. And this is exactly what the Joker does in the seminal classic Batman the Killing Joke, which is probably the most well-regarded, like when people are like, oh, the Batman Joker books are so good. Like, oh. And they are, but this is the one that everyone's like, oh, this is the one. Famously, the Joker breaks into Batgirl's apartment, Barbara Gordon, that is, and as soon as she opens the door, he just shoots her, uh, you know, through the sternum, or not the sternum, the... Uh, Oh, the torso and and shatters her spine with a bullet and she's uh you know confined to a wheelchair for like 20 years of continuity but he, after he does this he you know takes a shit ton of pictures of like her face and her crying and stuff like that to so he can show them to commissioner gordon because he's fucking insane but and i know that this is funny because jericho's like take the pictures <laughs> but i mean we've got y2 joker co well that's not very funny and, and we don't but it's helping me really enjoy what they're going for. And here's the thing. This is a mid-card storyline. It doesn't have to set the world on fire or be uh, or have the highest of stakes. The, the fate of the company or the championship doesn't have to hang in the balance. But what they've chosen to do has uh, you know, created some sort of reaction in me, and, and, and I'm enjoying it, so they're getting points, and I can't change the way that that is. Um, <laughs> oh, this cracks me up. So... They're they're done here, okay? And and the Fink is gra- is grabbing the luggage and uh, grabbing all the Polaroids that flew out of the camera as he took them. And Jericho's like, "Come on, we gotta go." And it's point forty four, and it's an acting point. Um, and and here's how my notes started because I think my thought process will make this even more entertaining. Jericho yells something that is very nineteen ninety nine, okay? It's so nineteen ninety nine that I started typing out this note because I was going to make a joke about how I should deduct a point because he yelled this on the way out, but I don't have rules for deducting points, and I can't do that. But then I suddenly realized that this joke, even though it's very dated and no longer funny, has ridiculous brand synergy because Chris Jericho, as he's running to the car, yells, Oh my God, I killed Kenny, which, ugh, I mean, come on. If it's kind of, that's one of those things where it's like if I hear somebody say it one more time and think that it's funny, I'm gonna punch him in the skull. All right, but then I remembered he's talking about Shamrock, and his name is Ken. So you know, 
It's Chris Jericho in 99. What are you going to do? It was pro- it was very humorous and a good reference for the time period. And then the hits, they just keep on coming because immediately after he yells this, point number 45 is awarded, and it's an acting point for Chris Jericho <laughs> because the Fink is loading the trunk with all the luggage and the pictures and the camera and stuff like that. And as Jericho gets to the car, in order to ensure a speedier getaway, he just pushes the Fink in the trunk. <laughs> And shuts the trunk because that will cut the amount of time it takes the fake to run over, open the door, and get in. And Jericho just drives away. Yes, it's dumb, but it's the little things, right? Uh, I had, if nothing else, think of it like this: it's worth a point because I, I had so much fun watching the segment. I'm surely not going to turn away because I want to see what happens next. And we go to a commercial. Uh, an hour and five minutes into the show, and we now have 45 points, and we only need seven to tie, for God's sakes. Uh, there's exactly 24 minutes left in the show, so the law of averages should dictate, well, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, just to sum it up, we got 23 acting points, 12 writing, 5 directing now, and of course the 5 intangible have been used. And the mid-card has so delivered here. They're responsible for so much of this, especially if you think of the triangle that is X-Pac, Jericho, and Ken Shamrock, to a lesser extent Shamrock, but these guys um, have all really made the most of their minutes, and throw in China and Billy Gunn as well, because they're a mid-card act, and they open the show, and yeah, that was a while back in our presentation, but at the same time, they got quite a bit of points as well, and of course, when you have folks like the McMahons, or well, I guess Shane McMahon and The Rock, and Foley, on the microphone, you're going to get points as well. Um, just well done. Oh, and you know, Snow and Boss Man, I think, got a couple points too. So everyone's really delivered this week. I-, I can't say enough positive things about what those guys, who I don't usually count on to carry this program, really, really carrying it. Now, we're immediately back from commercial, of course, due to the power of uh, <laughs> on-demand streaming content. <laughs> Triple H, Shane, and China are back now. They're coming down to the ring, and we do cut to the limo. As they enter the ring, and the door opens. And who is here? It must be a major award! Because it is indeed a pair of feminine legs. Now, I know this because of the high heel shoes uh, and the general overall way that they were enjoyed by me. Moving on, though. Shane McMahon indicates that he's restarting the number one contender match. And Shane will personally referee this match to make sure that Triple H and China cannot interfere. Now, strap in. Or pay attention. Point number 46 is awarded. It's a writing point. And <laughs> Shane says, now we got to get this thing restarted. So I'm giving The Rock five seconds. And the Mac means five seconds to get to this very ring. Now, I do find the catchphrase uh, theft humorous, calling himself the Mac, and the five seconds means five seconds. But I also love how he integrated the McMahon stuff into it by giving him five seconds to get to this very ring, which is such a McMahon thing to say. But it gets the writing point because, not because it's a funny catchphrase, but because it's great use of the villain or the person in power saying that they will actually absolutely do what is right to make this thing fair, uh, but we've only got five seconds to do it, so it's now or never. Um which is, you know, it's quite common. It's not some sort of revelation or new uh, breakthrough in entertainment, but it works for asshole heels that believe their own bullshit. So he starts to count five, four, 
And then like a little kid goes, three, two, one, real fast. I don't know. That, that doesn't get any points. But all of a sudden, there's a voice over the loudspeaker. And it says, you know what? I think that idea sucks. And I genuinely have to admit, even though I am a fucking guy doing a wrestling podcast, I couldn't place the voice. The first thing that popped into my head was Edge. And I was like, Edge? In September 99? No. Now, the voice reveals itself, and it is indeed Test. Okay. And hey, I thought Edge, and I'm not trying to... It's not a Canada joke. But I'm sure we can all understand why I thought Edge. Okay? Point number 47 is immediately awarded to Michael Cole. It's a writing point. As Test emerges from the stage... That's Shane McMahon's arch enemy. It's Michael Cole, and it's just world building, folks. It's just the simplest thing you can say to let you know who the character is. And we know how important Shane is, so that makes Test all that more important. You know what I'm saying? Because if Shane McMahon is Lex Luthor, who's Lex Luthor's chief rival? Okay, now Test isn't Superman, and I'll, I'll kill the comics. But you get what I'm saying, though, right? You're, I mean, that, that there's very much a thing here. I mean, you're selling the same thing, okay? Uh, and, you know, Lex Luthor has his villain, which is Superman. And, I mean, yeah. So, this makes Test seem important. Point number 48 is a writing point, and it's immediately awarded to Test. I'd like to introduce to you the other two owners of the WWF, my future mother-in-law, Linda, and Stephanie, my bride-to-be. Well, folks, this is world building. We've established not only that Test seems to have some sort of power in this relationship with Shane in terms of them being enemies, but he is in with the other two McMahons. And two McMahons equals 50% of ownership, and Shane is only one McMahon, which equals only 25. So the entire dynamics of this show, and thus the world that these characters inhabit, has immediately shifted and changed, quote-unquote, forever. Uh, Notice how it's 1999, and the McMahons start showing up for interview segments, and we suddenly start earning like writing points every time someone opens their mouth. Uh, and, and a cute little nod, uh, they, the two ladies, the two Lady McMahons come out to the test theme, which was a little disappointing because I was expecting, oh, 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 anyway, uh, it looks like the legs that were quoted by me as a major award earlier due to the uh, Christmas Story reference were indeed Stephanie McMahons. And I can't help but notice, and I'll just say it, Linda McMahon kind of looks like Dolph Lundgren. And that's okay, because Dolph Lundgren is a fucking, like, genius. He's like a chemist. I think a dude could, like, cure cancer if you gave him, like, enough time and enough money to do it. He's a really smart guy. Uh, Funny side note, uh, my note says Linda McMahon looks like Dolphin Lundgren. I mean, autocorrect's kind of funny sometimes. Point number 49 is awarded. It's a writing point to Linda McMahon, believe it or not. (laughs) This was probably written for her verbatim to deliver, but that's not important. It's not important how it's delivered. It's a writing point. It's what she says to control the narrative. Ooh, control your narrative. Those guys are weird. Stephanie and I together hold calling interest, controlling interest, excuse me. Now, uh, I, uh, I can hear all of you guys saying that every time they're opening their mouth doesn't necessarily warrant a point because they're just contributing to one narrative piece. Like, it's all, all everything that they say contributes to basically one big plot change but i'm going to disagree because every new div every time they're opening their mouths here they're telling us something new that we didn't have before about this program and these characters and 
to me, that equates, oh my God, they've already told me three things in quick succession that are new revelations to me. What are they going to say next that's new to me? Hence, they're worth a quote-unquote UPN point. Because I'm not touching that dial and changing the channel. These Each new wrinkle encourages me to stay. Linda books the rock and sock connection versus what I'm calling triple Shane. Because you spell Shane with three H's. And that's their that's their stand name or their, their ship name. And I like it. See, I messed up my Gen Z terms. I said they were that was their stand name, but it's the ship name. Because when you ship two people, you put them in a relationship. That's what that's your and that's your today in Gen Z culture moment. Right number right number. Point number fifty is awarded next, and it's a writing point. Because Shane McMahon has an awesome uh line delivery here, which could, you know, be acting, but it's writing because his awesome delivery tells us what we need to know about the overall plot. Shane's pissed about this Mac being match being booked. And he's like, You you can't you can't but but he knows that she can because he's looking at two mcmahons and he's one mcmahon so he has no defense here legally but he still does have power so after that last you can't he kind of like shakes his head and he's like fine but it's for the wwf tag gold because you know he's got to turn he does have power uh power to take this situation which could be bad and make it good but that you know Shane McMahon still gets his comeuppance because he's not a professional sports entertainer and he's just been booked in a professional sports entertainment match and that's sort of where we leave the scene the segment ends it's a quick one because we go to commercial at a minute and nine or excuse me uh, one hour and nine minutes we just went to commercial at one hour and five minutes which means this segment was exactly four minutes long, and we have exactly 20 minutes left, and they just earned five points in 14 minutes. And when you look at the overall point dictation, four, uh, you know, it's it's still, uh, what is it, five directing, five intangible, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's 18 acting points and 16 writing points. Writing, don't call it a comeback, because writing never left. I mean, they are here, and they're absolutely bringing it. It's quite a sight to see indeed. So we have 50 points on the board now. And you'll recall we only needed 52 to tie. I don't know about you. I want to see how far we can get. So let's dig in to uh, the, the next era of the show, if you will, which may quickly become an era uh, we haven't been into yet. We've broken the point threshold before with that pilot. But, who knows? This could be better. And I should probably point out that yes, I'm aware, after that great big soliloquy, the numbers are crunching in my head, and I realize that I fucked up and read the wrong part. So let's redo that. Rewind. But no, it's important. There's 23 acting points. Writing's up to 16 now, which they closed the gap quite a bit. Five directing, five intangible, two to tie. We all know the summary. But hey, nobody's perfect. Unless you want to say that this episode of SmackDown is a person. But that's not perfect. There have been segments that didn't earn points. But guys, we are on an absolute roll. I'm not on a roll, though, because, yes, I hear you yelling. It's 17 writing points. 23 acting, 17 writing, 5 directing, 5 intangible. God, just don't kill me, okay? Here's the thing. True story. Uh, based on my major 
when I was in university, I only had to take one math class the entire four years I was there, and I took it the first quarter of my freshman year to get it the fuck out of the way. So math is just not my main event forte, if you will. But that's okay. Shane and Triple H are in the locker room, and Triple H is telling Shane to calm down, and he will take care of everything. Well, gosh, that's really nice of Triple H to offer to do that. I think he's just a stand-up guy. Uh, Michael Cole and Jerry the King Lawler tell us that the tag division is in chaos. And there's clips from Wall. From Wall? Uh, I really just want to start this whole thing over again, but I've come really too far to do that. But it's a clip from Raw where there was a tag team match to determine the number one contender for Unforgiven. All right, And that match ended in chaos when every team in the WWF practically interfered. So up next, Michael Cole tells us, tells us we're having like a tag team Royal Rumble rules match, and I get very confused. Not once do they call it tag team turmoil until the very end when one of the teams uh, is ready to claim victory. And they say, so-and-so, ready to claim victory here in tag team turmoil. And I'm like, if you would have just said that, I would have been able to understand from the get-go what it is. But it is tag team turmoil. The Hollies and Viscera and Midian get us started. It's, uh, you know, pretty simple to understand. These teams have a match, and then as soon as a fall occurs, winners stay, losers leave, and a new team enters the fray. The next point is point 51, and it is an acting point. Crash Holly is laying on his stomach. Viscera hits a leg drop. The impact makes Crash Holly bounce. So as soon as Viscera hits the ring apron... He not only clotheslines Crash, but then he kind of moves his leg. And Crash Holly completely bounces up into the air a little bit. Crash Holly says, oh yeah, watch this, bitches. And spins from laying on his chest to laying on his back position in air. And uh, yeah, he lands on his back. And it makes it look like this was the sickest drop kick, or excuse me, leg drop in the history of our sport. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. Eventually, the Hollies win when the heels miscommunicate, and I believe uh, Draws, or not Draws, excuse me, Midian accidentally got hit by Viscera. Speaking of Draws, though, Draws and Albert are the next team, and would you believe point number 52, which is an acting point, which is what point 51 was, I feel like I forgot to mention acting, would you believe that the tying run, now we're all tied up at 52 with what we needed, comes from fucking Prince Albert? Well, Crash Holly helps him a little bit. So... Crash Holly is up in the powerbomb position, meaning Albert can, you know, powerbomb him. Holly's crotch is in Albert's face. It's a usual position. And Crash Holly's laying in the punches, okay? Albert tosses him up in the air from this position. And then he reaches up and tucks Crash Holly's head down. Crash continues to fall because, you know, gravity. Albert catches him and gives him the X-Factor. Ironically, Albert would later join X-Factor, but this looks awesome. I can't believe it. It looks like Crash Holly's dead. Oh, well, I mean, it looks like Crash Holly's out, and he's not going to be able to continue. From Michael Cole, we get, oh, man, what a maneuver. And then uh, Hardcore Holly, though, comes in and hits the Holocaust, probably the most ill-conceived name for a finishing move in history, and uh, Call calls it Tremendous Maneuver. So at least... Michael Cole is consistent, but that's the end of that particular fall. And out come the New Brood, also known as the Hardy Boys. Now, the next point 
is 0.53, so we're over the threshold and just into new territory here, kind of. Uh, the Hardys run down the ring, and each one of them starts to climb one of the turnbuckles closest to the entrance, with Matt Hardy being nearest the camera and Jeff Hardy being farthest from the camera, okay? Now, the camera focuses mainly on Matt making the climb, but we cut to a normal hard cam shot, and we watch Matt climb to target Crash Holly in the ring, but he's, he hasn't jumped yet. As we cut back into the normal view we're used to, we see Jeff Hardy has just .002 seconds ago launched off of the top turnbuckle farthest from us to uh, flying body press hardcore Holly on the floor. But the cut is amazing. We see Hardy in air. And of course, our mind make, you know fills in the gaps that he just jumped. But there's something kind of magical about it. And I'm not trying to sound silly. It's just like he's there and he's in air instantly. Like it's some kind of fucking magic. And not to mention, he lands on Hardcore Holly pretty square. And it's a pretty damn good you know move. This view, though, it makes Jeff look like a god. Just flying. I'm... I mean, look, I'm just talking about a random wrestling show from 1999, but this was a good, good job, all right? And then, immediately after it, we get point number 54, and it's an acting point because Matt Hardy watches his brother and times his moonsault jump for immediately when Jeff lands, so it looks fucking crisp, and the Hollies are out of here because it gets a one, two, three. Fuck, that was impressive, and it was like three sec. I don't know. Next up, though, are the Acolytes. Point number 55 arrives in this contest, and it's an acting point for JBL. Yeah, I'm calling him JBL. I don't care. The Hardys attempt a poetry in motion on Bradshaw. Bradshaw pops out of the corner while Jeff is in motion, if you will, and hits him with the fucking clothesline from hell, and it looks like he's just absolutely obliterated. It's pure madness, and the Hardys are out. Uh, for consistency's sake, there's no points here, but we'll at least talk about what happens next. Uh, the BWO is the next team, being the Blue Meanie and Steve Richards. Uh, and I fear for Blue Meanie's life because he's about to enter the ring with Bradshaw, and I'm afraid he'll be executed on a live, yet taped television program. But no, alas, the Blue Meanie never gets to the ring because he just dances in the aisle while the APA hit their powerbomb on Stevie Richards for a 1-2-3. I don't even know why these guys are here. But next... It's Edge and Christian. Edge and Christian and the Acolytes fight for like a minute. And then point number 56 arrives and it's a writing point. And holy shit, it's a writing point because we've got some new characters, folks. It's the Dudley Boys. They say that they're from ECW and they beat the shit out of the Acolytes with some 2x4s. And then they bail. No winners. And definitely a truly historic moment with one of the greatest teams in history. It's very quick, though. And it was kind of felt abrupt. But, uh, I mean, shit, the Dudley boys are here. And they're ready to tear some shit up in the WWF. The Rock and Sock walk for the main event. We head to a commercial at 1 hour and 19 minutes with exactly 10 minutes to go. So we've, we've won. Already, we have 56 points of a needed 52, so anything else we get is just cream cheese, as the uh, coach from Teen Wolf would say. Now, our pilot episode got 60. The points needed were 58, so they got over the threshold by two. So, you know, there's some interest, there's a couple different ways that you could look at this, all right? So we needed 52, and we've already beat that by four, but it's still only 56, and the pilot got 60, which was only two over. But still, I think 
measuring the total score to total score is probably the strongest way to compare the two, in my opinion. A quick summary and a recap, and I swear to God the math is right because I did it 66,000 fucking times to make sure and not embarrass myself on a national podcast audience. 27 for acting, 18 for writing, 6 for directing, and of course, 5 intangibles. In the back, Lillian Garcia interviews the Dudley Boys. Uh, Bubba Ray stutters, and he hits himself with a 2x4 in the face in an attempt to fix it. It works for like a sentence, and then it comes back again. Uh... Devon tells us the three demandments of Dudley Mania. It's pretty standard stuff, uh, you know, from our perspective here in 2022, but it's still fun to see this early gimmick in the out in the wild, if you will. It's time for the main event. The heels enter first, and Michael Cole reminds us that Magic the Gathering presents Unforgiven. This makes me realize and remember, and I don't even remember why I remember it here, but we get that sweet music video that sets up the main event of Unforgiven that features the song Sugar by System of a Down. How do I feel? What do I say? And the analog goes away. You know what I'm talking about. Mick Foley, the sock, if you will, enters the fray without the rock and starts the match early. After a minute delay, The Rock makes his way to the ring with his theme music. And I've got to be honest, I expected a larger pop. But perhaps the audience is getting a little tired of these guys. Not tired permanently, but hey, it's been a long night. These guys have been in and out a lot and had a lot of interaction. I'm just not sure. But point number 57 is awarded, and it's an acting point. And it's awarded to The Rock because Foley is on the outside of the ring here, kind of getting double-teamed by Shane and Triple H and even getting hit with a chair. And The Rock just calmly watches from the corner with the tag rope in hand. So it's like he's willing to be an active participant, but maybe not get overly involved saving Foley or protecting Foley. I'm not quite sure, but it's an interesting recall for the match. Um, It sets up The Rock being on the outside until the hot tag segment as well. Now there's 3 minutes and 45 seconds left. At this point, not when Rock grabs a tab, grabs a tab rope, but as I'm writing this note, there have been no points since the match started. It's been about three minutes. So you want to talk about wasted time. Maybe the most wasted time in UPN, that's unveiling potent numbers, history. But wait, point number 58 is next. And it is indeed an acting point. And it is indeed awarded to the billionaire heir apparent Shane McMahon. Shane goes for the Bronco Buster. But before, like as he's in the corner revving up to do it, before he can make the run, he does two very small, very fast X's crotch chops with his with his hands. And it cracks me up. Because I'm impressed that he's holding on to the continuity of stealing it from X-Punk, as he would say. And I think that goes pretty far. The next point comes a moment or two later. It's point number 59, and it's an acting point for Jerry the King Lawler. So China hits a low blow to Mick Foley during some Bonzo Gonzo stuff. And Lawler says in his extremely high-pitched voice, Ah! That's what his mom did when she found him naked! Which is kind of funny, but it does call back to Mick's promo earlier. And and that's why I feel okay at warding it in a point, because we get a lot of synergy and tie-up here at the end from, uh, you know, payoffs from segments earlier. So, like I say, the hot tag is hit. And The Rock is fists of fire and fury all over the place. Shane gets tossed out on the side where the announcers are. And point number 60, the tying point for the highest score in UPN history, arrives. And it's an acting point from Shane McMahon yet again. 
Mick Foley hits a baseball slide to Shane, and Shane jumps backwards, making himself fly and flip backwards. Or excuse me, and do a backwards rolling flip over the complete announce table. It's a great sell. Point number sixty-one arrives next, and it's a writing point. Mr. Ass is here, and he hits the Famouser on Triple H as vengeance from our opening contest. It's a complete circle. We end where we started. We start where we end. It's a great callback. He bails. The Rock hits a rock bottom and the people's elbow. And after three finishing moves, the next point and the final point is awarded. It's point sixty-two, and it's a writing point. The Rock pins the WWF champion. The Rock and Sock Connection win, and we go off the air. Folks, it's a new record. 62 UPN points. Can you believe it? 31 acting, 20 writing, 6 directing, and all 5 intangible were awarded. Wow. Take a deep breath. Now, just to sort of wrap this up here, top to bottom, I did think it was a very tight show that was written in a way that paid off Pretty much everything that we saw uh, start here on SmackDown had some sort of a conclusion here on SmackDown, and I think that's huge. Obviously, we have large threads hanging overall for the fate of the company and the universe at large, which I say, not jokingly, but very seriously. Um, And we've got some big overall plot developments for the main storylines. Now, the pilot invented the corporate ministry, which was indeed a huge thing. And I'm not saying that this development is on equal footing, but if you want to say, well, you know, even though it's 62 UPN points versus 60, the pilot was the pilot. It had that corporate ministry. It had that. Well, this has Linda and Stephanie debut as what I'm calling the 50%, uh, because, you know, it's not like an official thing. But that plays in to some major storylines leading into Unforgiven, and I think y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? Plus, it was nice to see the Dudleys here, and again, uh, the tag teams delivered some points at the end. The mid-card scene is absolutely fantastic and on fire here. I've It's a tight, tight show that is a I feel like this show is a it feels like a complete show and the pilot did as well and it's really fucking tough because the pilot is so historic and this is just you know the second match the second episode of Smackdown but let's look at some other classic second episodes The Godfather Part 2 The Empire Strikes Back The Last Jedi yeah I really like that Attack of, okay well Attack of the Clothes is not the best example but it's still fun I like all the Star Wars except for episode 9 but that's another podcast altogether. so 62 is indeed the new score to beat this is unquestionably the highest ranked episode of UPN and I think that we kind of have to live with that I didn't think anything would outscore the pilot I mean the pilot's the uh go back and listen to the episode if you don't believe me I I, I that pilot was such a fantastic like just standalone, if it had to be, two hours saga of a wrestling corp- company's battle within. I know that sounds cheesy, but trust me, go back and give it a listen. You'll see. But this was a fantastic tune in next week episode of wrestling. Because all of our storylines contained within this week had a payoff and have a movement for the next episode, if you will. Uh, like Jericho. And Shamrock's night came to a definite conclusion when Jericho assaulted Shamrock and got the upper hand and then bailed. So that's tonight's story had an ending, but there's plenty of room for the next story beat. And so I think 
That concludes this episode of UPN with a definite thumbs up for this episode with 62 points. But the next time we come to visit you here on the Aqua Cave to unveil these very potent numbers, it is indeed the 9999 episode of SmackDown, which I can tell you with 100% certainty that I had driver's ed that day because I... I had Final Fan. I, you know, I I went and got Final Fantasy VIII immediately after school, and then only played it for like an hour before I had to go to Driver's Ed, and of course was pissed. Uh, and I also made my parents rush me back home so I could catch the main event because I was absolutely not fucking missing it. So I need you all to power up your Dreamcast in anticipation, and most importantly, I mean, obviously you got to power up that Dreamcast, you know. Pull up uh, the the clips of Final Fantasy VIII online so you can watch along the next week. But make sure that your last will and testament has been signed. Because I have the sinking feeling that the next time we get together on UPN, someone is going to be buried alive. For free, nonetheless. We're not even going to have to pay for it. And it's going to be for free on UPN. And you can hear all about it the next time we are UPN.